Verse number one says, my little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sin, ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought also so to walk, even as he walked. We're going to look at this title tonight, Christians Who Conquer Sin. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to understand the passage Help us to be challenged by the passage. Help us to take the light of your word and the light of truth. And Lord, help us to shine it deep into our heart. And Lord, where things are that are preventing us from having the right relationship with you that we ought to, help us, Lord, to be willing uh, to make habit and lifestyle changes so that, Lord, we can walk in the light and we can enjoy the fellowship of the light. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I, um, I stumbled across a quote that I had stowed away in my archive uh, some time ago. I stumbled across that quote this week. And the quote um, I, I think is appropriate to begin the sermon with this, this evening. It's this. Uh, you cannot change the truth, but the truth can change you. You cannot change the truth, but the truth can change you. Um, here's another quote I think fits for the uh, message this evening. Um, you cannot live in God's love until you learn to live in God's light. You cannot live in God's love until you learn to live in God's light. You see, Christian, the book of 1 John is a familial book. What's that mean? It's talking to those who are part of the family of Christ. You cannot have fellowship with the Father if you're living in the shadows. You cannot know and you cannot properly give the love of the Father unless you are walking in the light. It is a commitment that we must make. Now, John is going to take the second half of his book and he's going to talk about love. And that's our theme this year, love works. But before he gets to the love, he wants to take half the book, the first half of the book, to talk about light. You see, because if you're not living in the light and walking with the light, and your life is not exposed by the light, then you cannot, one, know the love of God, you cannot live the love of God, and you cannot give the love of God. You must first learn to walk in the light, and then you will be able to give God's love. And so that's the goal uh, with the first half of the book. It's a matter of cleaning things up. It's a matter of dealing with sin. It is sin that hurts our ability to love and feel God's love. And so uh, we, we, we're dealing with that here. Now, First uh, John chapter 2 is a continuation of what we dealt with in the second half of First John chapter 1. Now, at the end of First John chapter 1, uh, there are two methods offered that Christians use to handle sins in their lives. And those two methods are laid out uh, very clearly in uh, there in First uh, John chapter 1. First John 2 offers a third way we handle sin. And so let me use those three ways for 
introduction uh, this evening. If you have that half sheet of paper with the outline, I would encourage you to write these down. Uh, first of all, we can cover our sin. We can cover our sin. First uh, John chapter number one and verse number six says this. It says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If we say that we have fellowship with him uh, and uh, we lie and do not the truth. So, Christian, uh, we looked at this last week, three stages of digression into deception. Digression into deception. The first one is we lie to others about our walk with God. We act as though we have a walk with God, even though we really don't. We come to church, we look the part, we talk the part, and in front of others, we act the part. But the truth is, we are not walking with God. And so, uh, with that, uh, we lie to others. Then we end up lying to ourselves. Look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we go from lying to others to lying to ourselves. We, uh, what we uh, had once hidden uh, in plain uh, daylight, or hidden out of plain daylight, rather, and, and, and kept from others, now we begin to tell ourselves, well, there's nothing really wrong with that, and that really isn't sin, and it really isn't a big deal. Uh, my pastor from Baltimore used to say that there isn't much difference between where someone lives and what someone believes. Either you will bring where you live up to what you believe, or you will bring uh, where, uh, or you will bring it. Uh, it's going to work one or the other. Now, I'm all confused and can't remember how the quote goes. Uh, but you get the idea here. Either you're going to bring yourself up to the standard, or you're going to bring the standard down to yourself. And uh, for a while, you may intellectually say that's a sin, but either you're going to figure out how to deal with that sin and bring it up, or you're going to bring the truth down to where you are. And uh, that's not a healthy way to live. And so we can cover our sin. Verse 10, if we say that we have not, not, if we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And again, God is not a liar. But when we go around saying, no, I have no sin, I have no sin, I've not sinned. Well, God says that there is none righteous, no, not one. And so who is, who is, the, who is telling the truth and who is lying? Either you're going to walk around calling God a liar or you have to admit that you are the one who is being deceptive. And that third stage is we try to change God and form him into who we want him to be. And so we can cover our sin. Let me say this evening that you cannot cover your sin and walk in the light. Can't do it. We looked at this quote last week, uh, secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. And so make sure you're careful there. Now, the second way Christians handle sin, number two, we can confess our sin. We can confess our sin. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We said last week that to confess our sin is to see our sin from God's perspective. Or to confess our sin is to agree with God on our iniquity. You may remember last week I used the illustration about the Bible seminary student who had been caught in a weekend of riotous living and sin. And he uh, was called into the dean's office. And the dean worked hard to help him see his uh, sin from the cross perspective. The only reason why God is able to forgive us is because Jesus was willing to hang on a cross. I sure don't want to run over that. I don't want to take advantage. 
advantage of that. I don't want to just go uh, uh, dive into sin and divulge in sin and and, and somehow think that it's going to be okay because if I go back to the Lord, he's going to forgive me. Boy, what a terrible way to live. Paul warns against that in the book of Romans where he says that we should not abuse God's grace. And so we are to confess our sin. The third way Christians should handle their sin or could handle their sin, number three, we can conquer our sin. We can conquer our sin. And this is the theme of the beginning of 1 John chapter 2, conquering sin. Now, if we confess our sin but we never conquer our sin, then we find ourselves in a vicious cycle. Boy, I have been in this cycle where I'm getting on my knees and I am repentant and sorrowful and contrite over my sin, but I'm not really conquering it. I just find myself back in the same place. What is the cycle? Well, we sin against God and ourselves and and perhaps even others. And then we feel guilty over our sin. And then what happens next? We get down on our knees and we confess and forsake our sin. And then we live a short little while without committing the sin And then again, we feel tempted to go back to do the sin. And then we commit the sin and we feel guilty all over again. You see the cycle? And it can happen over and over and over and over again. It can be a a sin that will plague a Christian for years or even a lifetime. And uh, listen, heaven's going to set us free from all that. And ultimately, heaven will conquer all of our sin. I don't want to wait till I get to heaven to conquer habit sin. I want to deal with it here on earth. And I have been at a place in my Christian life many times where habitual sin has beaten me over the head and so discouraged me where I was ready to throw in the towel and just believe that I couldn't beat it or that it could not be beaten. Listen, I know what the Bible says. I've grown up in church. I've memorized verses. And I know the verse in Corinthians that says that there hath no temptation taken you. And that God will provide a way of an escape that we may be able to bear it. But can I be honest? There have been times where I felt like, where's the escape, Lord? Where is it? I sure can't find it. Uh, Lord, I've prayed about this. I've worked on this. So I've even gotten accountability partners on this. And I can't seem to overcome it. And uh, 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 but the Bible is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. I may not at times feel like I can conquer sin, but 1 John chapter 2 promises us that we can and offers us a way to do it. Many Christians grow to a certain level where they gain the approval of their lifestyle in the eyes of their spouse or their parents or their pastor or church leadership, and then they settle down right there. And they don't care to advance any farther. Uh, I love the song, uh, Higher Ground. I love that song, I Want That Mountain. Both of these are attitudes of, hey, where I'm at in my Christian life isn't good enough. I am content, or rather I ought to be content with the possessions that I have. I ought not be content with where I am in Christ. I ought not be content with who I am in my relationship with the Lord. I I, I ought to rather sing the song, He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. 
He's still working on me. I want God to continue to press me and push me and make me into what I ought to be. I remember when I was a soccer coach and a basketball coach, I'd make those kids run and run and run. And the first week of practice, I'd get them out there and I'd make them run until somebody threw up. He'd say, you are cruel. Listen, if you can't run in sports, you don't stand a chance. You don't stand a chance. I would push and press. And I have to tell you, when they woke up the day after, the morning after that first day of practice, none of those kids liked me very much. None of them. Uh, after that first week. But I got to tell you, when we started winning basketball games and soccer games, boy, coach was a big deal. Why? Because coach is willing to push and press. I don't always like it when the Spirit of God is convicting me over sin and He's pushing me and He's pressing me and He's saying, hey, get off your ease in Zion and press forward for the Lord and uh, uh, overcome that sin in your life and overcome that complacency in your life. I want to do bigger things with you. Hey, sometimes the Lord needs to tear me down so that He can lift me up and I want the Lord to make me into who He wants me me to be and I want the Lord to make you into who he wants you to be but he can't if sin's in the way he can't if sin's in the way I think of the potter with a wheel and he he's bringing the clay up but there's that lump of uh, uh, there's that miry clay that lump that shouldn't be there before he can really get that clay uh, formed into what he wants he must first remove the lump that's in the way and 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 how about us if we're holding on to those lumps of sin and refusing to let them go my friend we're not walking in the light we're walking in darkness and first john tells us we have no fellowship with him at all christian i want to tell you this evening that you can conquer sinful habits you can conquer sin let's jump in in the outline this evening and look at three truths from first john chapter two as we consider this topic christians who conquer sin number one notice the intention of a true christian the intention of a true Christian. Go back to 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 1. It says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, there was uh, some false doctrine running around churches uh, 20, 30 years ago, and I guess in some circles this may still be the case, but it was this false apostate teaching of a, a false doctrine called sinless perfection. And the idea was that someone could grow and, and, and overcome sin and uh, be perfected in such a way where they just didn't, they just stopped sinning. They just didn't sin anymore. Um, I don't know anyone who has got to that point. Well, a man was teaching this false doctrine in his church, and he asked the question, he said, how many of you here have ever met someone who has, uh, who has reached the point of sinless perfection, where they are perfect? And uh, the room was quiet, and finally, after a moment, uh, a pastor was just getting ready to pick back up, a man, a short man in the back of the room raised his hand, and a feeble-looking man, weak man, raised his hand, and the pastor called out to the man and said, you've met someone who has reached the state of perfection. And he stood up and he took his hat in his hand and he said, well, I've not met him, but I've heard about him. Uh, my wife talks about her former husband and I, she thinks he's perfect. Uh, so um, uh, no one reaches that state of sinless perfection. In fact, the longer that I'm a Christian, the more I realize how flawed I am. 
The story is told of a young girl who accepted Christ as her Savior and shortly thereafter applied for membership in a local church. Were you a sinner before you received the Lord Jesus into your life? inquired an old deacon. Yes, sir, she replied. Well, are you still a sinner? To tell you the truth, I feel I'm a greater sinner than ever. The deacon then asked, then what real change have you experienced? She said, I don't quite know how to explain it, except I used to be a sinner running after sin. Listen to this. But now that I am saved, I am a sinner running from sin. She was received into the fellowship of that church. A a family bought a, a home, or rather bought a big piece of property in the middle of nowhere out in Montana. And the, part, the plan was to put a vacation home uh, on an area that was a, a ridge. And, and so they, 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 they went out and they decided, well, if we're going to put a home here, we have to remove the boulders. And so that was the easy part. They got some cranes and had the boulders removed. And they realized that after the boulders were gone, there were still large rocks. And so they didn't see the large rocks until the boulders were gone. And then they got the, all the big rocks cleaned up. And then they came back and said, well, uh, uh, there's still, uh, uh, still little rocks and pebbles. And we've got to get those cleaned up. And boy, they had to get out there. And, and, and it seemed as though the smaller the rocks got, the harder harder it was to get them up, but after they put in the sweat, blood, and tears, after they labored for hours, countless hours on end, they were able to build their vacation home on that site. Christian, the day you got saved, there were boulders and stones and rocks and pebbles and grains of sand that did not belong in the soil of your heart, and uh, you have to get to work to get that there. What is What ought to be the intention of a true Christian? The intention of a true Christian ought to be to never sin. Never sin. Now, are we ever going to get there? No. Uh Uh-uh. The truth is, I have sinned today in some way, I'm sure. Between my thought life, uh, between my attitude, between my actions, between my tone of voice, I'm sure I've crossed God's law uh, more than once today. And where I have, I ought to recognize that and confess that to the Lord and see it as God sees it. Uh, I'm never ever going to get there. Uh, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I should be. But bless God because of the promises of God and the work of uh, His sanctification in my life, I'm not where I was. The intention of a true Christian. Look back at verse number one. He says there, my little children, these things I wrote unto you that ye sin not. What is the intention of a true Christian? To eliminate all sin out of our life. Now, I know that we look at that and say, well, pastor, it's just never going to happen. And everyone sins. So what's the big deal? If that's your attitude, then you're missing the point. You're missing the point. We are to get to a place where we hate all sin in our life. And like this young lady said, I'm going to, instead of running to it, I'm going to work to run from it. Number two, notice the intercessor for the tarnished Christian. The intercessor for the tarnished tarnished Christian. Look back at 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Notice letter A, Jesus is our advocate. 
He is our advocate. Now, this is really good. Uh, look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 1 again. My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate. An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Note that word advocate there. The root word for advocate is the Greek word parakletos. Parakletos. Interestingly enough, when Jesus told uh, the disciples that he was going to leave the comforter in John 14, he used the exact same word. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. He is our advocate. You say, well, then who is the advocate? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it Jesus? And the answer is, it's both. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4 with me. Hold your place in 1 John 2. Now, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And he is our paraclete, our comforter, our advocate here on earth. The Holy Spirit is. And Jesus is our advocate, our helper, our comforter in heaven. And they're both doing a work on our behalf. One on earth and one in heaven. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Before we read verse 14, 15, and 16, let me just help you understand what an advocate is. An advocate is a lawyer. An advocate is someone who runs to the help of or to the aid of someone who is in legal distress. We need that person. Now, uh, I, uh, when I was young, I uh, needed to go to court over a traffic incident, uh, over something that I didn't even do. Uh, it was a misunderstanding. It ended up getting cleared up, a clerical error. But I had to go to court, and I was advised to get a lawyer. And I was 21, 22 years old, maybe a little older than that, but uh, in my early 20s. And I remember I walked into the clerk, uh, uh, the, the clerks, uh, or rather into the courtroom, and I didn't have a lawyer. And I walked up to the prosecuting attorney, uh, and I showed them some paperwork. And they looked at me with this puzzled look, and they said, where is your lawyer? And I said, I don't need a lawyer. I represent myself. And I got up to the bench. And the judge looked at me and said, where is your lawyer? And I said, um, I was a little more respectful to the judge. I said, uh, you're honorable. I, I, I don't need a lawyer. I'm here representing myself. He did not like that. He did not like that. Now, in our court system today, uh, it's almost mandated that you have a lawyer. I believe that you can uh, represent yourself, but it is greatly recommended that you do. I have to tell you that if I'm going to stand before God the Father, I don't want to represent myself because I am a sinner. Boy, I need some help. I need someone to run to my aid and run to my defense. And who better than the person of Jesus Christ? Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is our advocate. He is our advocate. Where is Jesus sitting right now? At the right hand of the Father. What's he doing at the right hand of the Father? He's advocating for us. He's advocating for us. Here's how this works. I get to walk into the throne room of God with a heart that is contrite over my sin, a heart that confesses my sin, and God the Father, uh, Jesus Christ rather, sits next to God the Father, and Jesus Christ advocates for me on my behalf with God the Father. He looks at God the Father and he says, will you forgive him? And God the Father looks back at Jesus and says, I'll do it for your sake. 
I'll do it for your sake. He is our advocate. And because of that, we can come boldly, the intercessor for the tarnished Christian. When we go to the Lord, we are to confess. Now, I've said this on a Wednesday evening some time ago, and I know many of you are in here, but boy, it bears repeating. For those of you, uh, it'll be a second time, and for the rest of you, it'll be a first time. Uh, uh, listen, the devil likes to get us in a place where when we sin, he tells us, God doesn't want to hear from you. God doesn't want to talk to you. He's angry at you. He, he's put out with you. Hey, you fell into that sin yesterday and the day before and the day before that, and then you went and fell into it today. He's tired of hearing how sorry you are about your sin. And you know what? We'll go a day or two or three. We'll go a month or two or three and not have any real walk with God because we, we think that God is angry at us. No, my friend, no. God the Father has God the Son sitting right next to him, and they're begging for us to come boldly into the throne room of grace so Jesus can advocate on our behalf. Boy, uh, how much does God love you? So much that he put Jesus on the cross for you, and then after he saved you, he put an advocate for you in heaven, and he put an advocate within you on earth. Wow. Let her be noticed that Jesus is our atonement. Our atonement. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 2. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, from the best of my studies and the best what I can gather, uh, that word propitiation is only found three times in the Bible. Twice here in 1 John and once in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, it means something different than it does here in 1 John. In Romans, it, it is a mercy seat. Here in uh, the 1 John, it speaks about Jesus being our atonement. He is our substitute. Now, why is it that we need atonement? Because we have sinned. Why is it that we need an advocate? Because of Satan. Please understand that Jesus is our lawyer. And he goes to heaven and he stands by our side. And God the Father is the judge. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And Satan says, hey, I have a record that this guy or this girl did this. And God the Father looks at Jesus and Jesus says, yep, but I already paid for it. Boy, our advocate is the one who has atoned our sin. And we can come to him with that sin, and we can see our sins forgiven. But the title of the sermon this morning, or rather this evening, is not about confession, it's about conquering. You see, for us to conquer sin, there are some things that we must do. Number three, notice the identity of a thriving Christian. Again, point number one laid out for us our goal, our intention, and that is to live a life where we sin not. I may not get to a place of sinless perfection, but I can sin less and less and less and less. I can get to a place where sinful habits have less of a grip on me or no grip on me. And sins may come in my heart and the Lord brings it to my attention. I was reading an illustration in preparation for this sermon about a time that Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon was walking across the street. He stopped in the middle of the street and one of his deacons with him. The deacon kept on going and got to the other side. There Mr. Spurgeon is standing in the middle of the street looking up to heaven and carriages, horse carriages are just passing him on every side. And, 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 and he stops He's looking up to heaven as though he's praying and he gets done and he walks on the other side of the street and the deacon looks at Mr. Spurgeon and says, 
what were you doing, praying? He said, yes, sir, I was praying. He said, what were you doing praying in the middle of the road? You could have got hit by a carriage and killed. He said, I felt a cloud come between me and my Savior. And I didn't even want to let one passing moment go by until I dealt with that cloud, that, that cut between me and the Lord. Boy, I want to be there. Where my, my sin habits are pushed to the side. And when I do sin, I drop my head and immediately confess it. Is that your heartbeat? The identity of a thriving Christian. Look at verse 3 of 1 John 2. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. Let's look at these verses a little bit more closely. Notice letter A, he cherishes God's law. He cherishes God's law. Now, please again remember that 1 John is written to the saved. This is not a book that's written to the lost. This is a book that is written to those who are saved. In fact, if you go back to verse number 1, you'll see where it says, My little children. The root word for little children uh, is translated uh, as little children here. It could have also been translated, uh, those who are newly born again. Newly born again. So those who are new to the Christian faith, those who are still learning their way, cutting their teeth on spiritual meat, if you will. And uh, these are those who are part of the family of God. A little bit later in First. John 2, he uses the word brethren. This is written to those who are in the family of God. So when we see the word commandment here in verse number uh, 3, it's not speaking about the Ten Commandments. It's talking about the familial rules that make things go. 1 John chapter 2, look back at verse number 3. It says, and hereby we do know him if we keep, if we keep his commandments, if we cherish, if we keep, if we walk guard around, if we treasure his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Uh, we preached a sermon uh, some time back entitled, The Keep Commandment. And we looked at the word keep all throughout the Bible and the different uh, things that that word keep means. And uh, keep is to treasure, to guard, to put a fence around, to dr- deeply value. Do you cherish, do you value the laws of God? Um, I have here in my notes that there are three motives in obedience. I'd recommend somewhere you jot these down. Here are the three motives in obedience. We have to, we need to, we want to. We have to, we need to, we want to. You know what a slave does? A slave obeys because he has to. What happens to a slave if that slave doesn't obey? He's probably beaten. And by the way, I'm not endorsing that. I'm just helping explain the reality here. There are those who obey only because they have to. And then there are those who obey because they need to. I think about someone who gets up and goes to work each week but doesn't really like their job. You know what? They show up on time, not because they have to, because they don't have to go to work, but they need to if they want to pay the bills. They do what their boss tells them to, not because uh, they have to. They don't have to obey the boss. They could not obey and get fired, but they need to if they want to pay the bills. Retirement is coming. Amen. (laughs) And then there are those who obey because they want to. Now, in my notes, I have, we have to, we need to, we want to listed. 
Next to we have to, I have the word slave written. Next to we want to, I have the word employee written. And next to we want to, I have the word Christian written. You know what a true Christian is? He's someone who obeys God, not because he has to. Not because she needs to. But because this person wants to. They want to obey God. I have found in my Christian life that I possess one of two attitudes toward God's law. I look at it and say, how much can I get away with? Or I look at it and say, how can I please you, Lord? How can I please you, Lord? I I don't want to be that Christian that pushes up against the boundaries. I want to be that Christian who says, Lord, I would rather live so far from sin that I'm not even concerned about that. I just want to please you. By the way, when you learn to cherish God's law, what you're really doing is you're cherishing God. Come here, April. This is my daughter. I love her very much. I love the relationship I have with my children. I have a different relationship with Matthew than I do with April. Um, Those of you that have both a son and a daughter, you you probably understand the difference. Um, um, She's more delicate. And um, today we, we parked over at Brother Vince's house. He's so kind to let us do that every week. Create a couple more parking spots here at the church. And April rode over there with me, and I held her hand all the way back to the church. And I, I thought to myself, as I held her fingers between my fingers, I thought, I'm only going to get to hold her hand for a little while. She'll move on. You know, um, God looks at us the way that a parent looks at his child or her child. You ought not... Oh, April ought not obey me just because she has to. By the way, when she was two, that's what she did. She was afraid of getting in trouble. She ought not obey me because she needs to. She ought to obey me because she wants the fellowship that comes with the obedience. Are you all with me this evening? Oftentimes we look at Christianity like it's some set of rigid regulation and rules. Hey, set the rigidity to the side. I don't want to be that preacher who gets up and takes the rule stick and beats you over the head with it all the time. God wants you to have a relationship with him. And the rules that I have put in place with April and Matthew are there to maximize the fellowship in our home. And the rules that God has given you are meant... Give me your hand. That's quite the ringtone. All right, please put that on silent, whoever you are. Listen to me here, listen to me. God wants to walk hand in hand with you. And the rules that he's given us, you are to cherish. Why? Why? Because when we walk wayward from the Lord, fellowship, stay there, fellowship is broken. When we walk with the Lord, we cherish His rules and His laws. You see the family element here? God loves you. He didn't give you those laws because He wants to make your life miserable and hard and harsh. No, He gave you those laws because He's trying to protect this. 
Do you cherish God's laws? You cannot conquer sin if your attitude towards God's laws... Thank you, April. So I believe some Christians, they have the attitude toward God's laws the way a teenager has toward his parents. What can I get away with? How far can I push it? Do you know that when a teenager lives that way, the relationship at best with mom and dad is strained? And oh, so many Christians go through life with this attitude of, ah, I don't like the rules. And people that get up and preach the Bible and preach the rules. Listen, I don't get up here week after week and preach the Bible so that I can make you feel like a bad person if you don't follow it. I get up here and I preach the Bible and what God says because I want you to follow it so that you can have a deeper relationship with your Abba Father. You get to choose your attitude toward God's laws. Are you going to cherish them or are you going to trash them? Are you going to watch them, walk guard around them and say, Lord, I'm going to obey you, not because I have to, not because I need to, but Lord, I want to because I want that walk with you. A thriving Christian. His identity is in part, he cherishes God's law. Let her be noticed, he cultivates God's love. Now we begin to see... The speak about love work its way in to John's letter. Now that he's talked about walking in the light, now he's going to get into walking in God's love. Look at verse 5. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Boy, what's happening here? We're rooted and grounded in love as we looked at, I believe, in Ephesians 2 this morning. We're rooted and grounded in love. What happens here? We are, we are walking in the light and God's love is beginning to grow in our heart. Cultivating God's love. I don't know about you, but I want, I want to love the brethren and I want the brethren to love each other. Nothing breaks the pastor's heart more than to hear that folks are fighting within, within the church. Boy, nothing breaks the pastor's heart more. If I were to hear that this sister was fighting with that sister, it would crush me. That this brother is not getting along with that brother, boy, it would crush me. Boy, that's not cultivating love. That's, that's, that's rigidity and hatred building up in our heart. We are to cultivate God's love. How is it that you are identified as a thriving Christian? Well, you're walking in the light, and as a result, God's love is growing in your heart. I finished the sermon here, letter C, notice. He copies Christ's lifestyle. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he Walked. Who is the he here? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I love to read and study the Gospels. I love to read and study the life of Christ. I love to know who Christ was and how he lived. Uh, uh, some years ago, as a school-age boy, part of my Christian school education, I was required to read the book, In His Steps. It's a book that talks about uh, 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 what if everyone lived by the mantra, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? We all remember the 1990s and the WWJD bracelets that were so popular. Even athletes would wear them and and uh, it, it became a, a trend and a fad. And listen, uh, companies that make merchandise, they'll turn anything into a fad and make a buck. But uh, listen, the WWJD idea, what would Jesus do? 
you know that is something Christians need to get back to. What would Jesus do? How would Jesus behave? How would Jesus live? If I am going to be serious about overcoming my sin, then I must first and foremost cherish God's law because his law is meant to protect my relationship with him. And then I will grow in his love as I bask in it and I will turn around and I will give it to others. And then I will begin to mold my life into the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, there are many Christians out there that have the wrong idea of what a Christian life looks like. A man once testified in one of D.L. Moody's meetings that he had lived on the Mount of Transfiguration for five years. I love pious people like this, said no pastor ever. Moody bluntly asked him, well, uh, Moody bluntly asked him, how many souls did you lead to Christ last year? The man replied, "Um, I don't know. Have you seen anyone saved? Moody persisted. I don't know that I have, the man admitted. Well, said Moody, we don't want that kind of mountaintop experience. When a man gets up so high, please don't miss this, when a man gets up so high that he cannot reach down and save poor sinners, there is something wrong. There is something wrong. Our heartbeat ought to be the heartbeat of Christ. The heartbeat of Christ is others. It's purity. It's a life that's lived in the light. It's a life that cherishes that relationship. If you can take these three points under our final point here, these eight, these, these eight, this A, B, and C, cherish God's law, cultivate God's love, copy Christ's lifestyle. If you can begin to put some things in place to practice those, what I think will happen is, what I think what you'll see is that you'll begin to conquer sin in your life. Why? Because you'll see that the cleaner that ground gets, the richer that relationship with Christ gets, and it just makes you hungry to want more. It just makes you hungry to want more. Christian, are you becoming like Christ? Are you walking in the light as he is in the light? Or are you walking in darkness? Let's not let sin hurt our relationship. Let's walk with the Lord. Lord, help us this evening to take the principles and truths out of 1 John 2 and go forth and do our best to live them. Lord, we love you. We want to love you more. We want to love you better. We want to love you with a heart that's pure. Help us to love you and love others. Help us not be, to be concerned with impressing each other. And Lord, just concern ourselves with walking in the light. In Jesus' name we pray.